Hey you, thanks for tuning into the Waiting List Podcast. I'm Long Long. I'm Daniel. And I'm Jacqueline. And we are three watch friends with a healthy obsession for watches. So sit back and relax with us while we chat with collectors, industry giants, and share some good vibes. Hey guys, uh, welcome to a new episode of the Waiting List Podcast. And Today, um, I'm joined by my co-host, Daniel. Unfortunately, Long Long um, had to run for uh, work emergency, so she can't join us for this episode. Um, but uh, in her place, I guess, like we're, I'm very excited to have on the guest today. And um, you have definitely heard of him on Instagram, if not read one, of her, uh, one or two of his blog posts. Um, we have King Flum with us and and uh for podcast purposes we'll uh, refer to him as flum and welcome onto the show thank you for joining us thanks jack uh really appreciate it dan appreciate you having me here and uh well first podcast it's uh it's uh, it's nerve-wracking i felt this morning when i woke up uh planning for this call i was wondering what what to expect and uh it felt like how it felt back in the day you know first job interview so Oh, well, (laughs) thanks for having me. I'm sure Dan will make you feel comfortable. Uh, (laughs) um, But a little bit of a background story. So, you know, obviously we we know each other on Instagram, but really started talking to each other uh, thanks to the kind of sudden bloom of of, uh, uh, Clubhouse around this time last year. And uh, yeah, it's really nice to, to see what you look like and, and, and chat face to face. But I guess like jumping straight into it, um, for those who don't know you or, you know, want to know a little bit more about yourself, um, can you tell us a brief introduction, where you're from, where you currently are, what you do for a living and um, how you got into watches in general and your uh, job qualifications right? <laughs> and why do you think you are suitable for this podcast <laughs> so let me start with the final one which is uh, I don't think I'm suitable but then you know Dan has poor judgment as everyone knows so here <laughs> I am <laughs> and uh, on that note I guess yeah um, it's weird Jack because you, you mentioned it's weird to, to see what we look like i i uh we've we've even spoken on the phone if you recall about the pieces that you're commissioning and uh not being able to see people yeah yeah it's sort of kind of irrelevant now it's weird and uh indeed it is nice to put a face to a name and it's kind of why the in-person meetups are are so good but for sure uh you'll realize quickly i i go on very on tangents really quickly so please stop me but (laughs) on on the topic of (laughs) of who i am um yeah, I'm South African born. I actually grew up of all places in Zambia. But before that, we lived a short period in Vancouver as well, in Canada. Huh. Uh, and then so I spent sort of my primary school years in Zambia. And I weirdly met another collector who went to the same school as me 20 years prior at, in Lusaka. And then I moved to South Africa, back home, effectively, and studied there in boarding school for high school, as well as university, finance background, worked in consulting for, I guess, 
five years or so, then moved to the UK to do a master's and ended up staying. And so that wasn't the plan, but yeah, here I am 12 years later. In terms mm. of work, I started off and uh, consulting, but then when I came here, the reason I actually stayed was I got this random job offer through LinkedIn and uh, I didn't know what to expect, but I was trying to bootstrap a startup. So I, I took the job only for the money just to, to get more money to fund the startup. And this job involved going to Iraq uh, for work. And part of that was doing something they call hostile environment training before being allowed to go because it's blue chip company security they took quite seriously. The US Army was still in Iraq at the time. So we went off somewhere far north of England and got taught about IEDs, identifying them, knowing what to look out for, kidnap situations. We even got trained on different kinds of weapons. Uh, there were two cars. They, they do a scenario where you drive and they simulate coming under attack in, in, in a battlefield environment. And they don't give you a warning. You just go off in an armored vehicle. These are B6 armored, so the doors are really heavy. The, there's no space between the back seat and the boot because there's a little hatch to, you know, if, to prevent fire coming from the back. And so this scenario is you're driving along and suddenly there's loud simulated explo real explosions, but they're not obviously hostile. And then you have to, uh, they start screaming, your adrenaline goes up. Uh, and, and what's happening is they're pretending that one of the vehicles is immobilized and you have to practice moving up. So making space for the, for the occupants of that vehicle that's been immobilized to get into your vehicle. So you have to jump over a seat uh, and then they open the doors next to each other to, to form like a shield against incoming fire. People have to dive across into your vehicle and then you speed away. And even though it's in the middle of England, it feels pretty scary. But after doing all of that, you have to do a time trial of uh, exiting the back of the vehicle from and, and, and the roof hatch. So that's in a scenario where you have to exit the vehicle and the doors aren't working. And if you don't do this within the, the time that the security team, team set, sets, uh, you're not allowed to travel to Iraq. Anyway, so that already is quite exciting. But after doing that, then at that time, the commercial flights weren't cleared for security. So we fly to a place like Kuwait and then take a private jet into either Basra or Baghdad. Uh, and I used to do negotiations with the government for oil and gas contracts. And so that's why I would go to the Ministry of Oil in Baghdad. That's driving through downtown Baghdad to the ministry. And... Yeah, it is, it, the, the job was just insanely exciting. And so I decided to stay and I ended up doing that for a number of years. Then I worked on JV management, essentially joint venture management with actually PetroChina. So had some experience working with uh, the Chinese. It's, it's, like, it's like an entirely different mindset, the way they operate. They, they, they send in people every six months to get trained up, learn the ways of the West and take it back home. It's, it's, it's quite interesting to see how they operate versus other joint venture partners. But anyway, uh, then I sort of did a bit of project management on oil and gas operational stuff. And I guess around the time I had a kid, 
I chose to move into renewables. And so I guess that was in what, 2016, 17, around there. And since then, I've just been doing development of renewables, uh, still with blue chips, but now it's about long-term large asset development. So offshore wind farms, uh, utility scale, solar, um, green hydrogen and uh, battery storage. So that's what I do now. And I guess that's it. Yeah. What did I miss? No, well, far and beyond. You should never underestimate the middle of England as being, a, you know, not rough. <laughs> right me and you know there's an invisible line you know which basically is just above london <laughs> okay i'm joking everybody i'm joking you know don't take it too seriously <laughs> yeah yeah well why where, where, where did you come up with the name king flumdo well dan i knew this was coming i put it this way this is a story i never tell on the record and uh one which I'll save for when we meet in person. Uh, needless to say, it's really silly. It has no basis in fact whatsoever. The King is almost just a parody at this point. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, I made this. Someone shared an app which you can make, you know, amateur logos. And I made this logo which where I tilted the crown purposely to seem like a jester. But uh, it's absolutely the opposite of reality i hear uh, i don't see myself that way but it's funny so i stick to it and as 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 to how it came about uh yeah i'll tell you in person one day okay. <laughs> all right okay. so that part's cut <laughs> no 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 don't cut it it's fine I, I, because people ask me this a lot right? so you'd be surprised and i yeah it, it's also nice to leave I don't know if you remember, there's this guy, Lou, who does unbox therapy videos on YouTube. And he's got like, I yeah. don't know, 15 million. So yeah. he had this cameraman, Jack, for the first 10 million subscribers, where he actually just referred to Jack and he used to point to Jack. And we never, ever saw Jack, not in reflections, not in anything. And yeah. at some point, people were like, is this Jack guy real? And then it became a sort of running joke that he's not real. And this guy, Lou, yeah. the Unbox Therapy guy, is making him up. And he built it up to this point where one day they did a reveal for, I think it was 10 million subscribers, and Jack happened to be real. But um, So so in, in that way, not that I'm Lou from Unbox Therapy, but I think <laughs> just, just, just to keep something really random uh, a secret for now is, is entertaining, at least. And, you know, small things amuse small minds, so I, I take that. Fine. <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, you said it, not me. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, you uh, thought it. Come on, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, how 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 did you got, get into watches? Yeah, obviously the point of why we're here. I, this is, yeah. uh, I guess, I wrote the story uh, briefly on. That you you blog. did the first blog and, entry of your post uh, <laughs> of your blog. <laughs> yeah. That, so so it's it's true. I I guess. It wasn't about the mechanical nature of the watch. I think it was just maybe uh, the, the typical boy attitude in me coming through, you know, the obsession with gadgets and things. Uh, in my mind, that's what it was. It was another piece of tech. And back then we didn't have 
laptops and iPhones and so on. So I think that was probably the only piece of tech I owned, which was this tiny digital watch. Um, and and so I, I kind of connected with it. And weirdly, there was this, I remember this lady, uh, she's still friends with my mom, uh, but they had like a department store and there were these, uh, like an entire bag full of digital watches, really cheap. And so she gave them to me and said, hey, like, you know, pick whatever you want, sell the rest, do whatever you want, because we don't have any use for these. And so I started, so this was in Zambia, right? So when I was in primary school and uh, in in Zambia and in Africa, we have staff at home. So people that do the gardening, there was one guy, Charles, who used to look after me as a kid. It's like a nanny, but also like a friend, we used to go, we used to play football together. He used to push me on the swing, this type of thing. And and so they obviously have a network of people uh, around the location that we, we lived. And he'd just inform people like, hey, this guy's selling watches and they'd tell their friends. And so within a few days, there were queues of people outside my yard at uh, after, like just after school time ended. And I'd be walking back from school and uh, everyone's trying to buy watches. And that's my first sort of vivid memory of anything related to watches. But I guess I didn't grow up with like loads of money or anything. So mechanical watches, there is a story about my my dad who actually made and lost a bunch of fortunes actually in his time. And he owned a Patek and a Cartier lighter. So Patek and a Cartier lighter, which were his like prized possessions that got stolen. And I guess someone asked me, why don't you collect Patek? And I'm like, well, it's not that I don't like the brand. It's that I want to save, I want to save the acquisition of a Patek for some momentous occasion. And I'm not sure what that is. And I feel that when the time comes, uh, it will feel right. And so I'll know at that point, this is the one it should be. Who knows when that'll happen? Who knows if it'll happen? But but that's kind of this romantic idea that I sort of reserve in my mind. Anyway, so after those digital watches, the simple cheap ones, um, I guess the first love was data banks and that remote control Casio watch. So it was very much digital, nothing to do with mechanical. And I had a bunch of those ones which glowed. Uh, mm. I, they were really, really awesome. I, I <laughs> remember going to, to, to the mall and turning TVs in the window on and off, changing the channels, that type of stuff, using it at school, getting it confiscated. So those are the memories I have from the younger days. And I, honestly, I, I think I don't even know when the mechanical obsession, I don't have a specific moment where I can point to and say that's where it kicked in. But I want to say it, it probably coincides with the point where all my major responsibilities financially were kind of taken care of. And then there was spare income to be used on, let's say, ostentatious things. And then that led to this rabbit hole, which I'm in right now, where I have chrono alerts going off on my phone. I spend a lot of time on Instagram talking about watches. I spend time offline writing about watches, reading about watches. And even when I read, non-watch related content i i find myself trying to apply it to watches so even if i'm reading economic forecasts i'm like how will this affect watches it's it's sort of permeated all levels of my brain and it's 
often tiring, but still very exciting. Mm. How much time do you think you spend on watches a day? Like, be it looking at it, uh, reading through chrono alerts, uh, writing posts, or responding on Instagram or commenting. Like, how much time do you think you spend? Before he answers that, yeah, like, give you some thinking time. Jack, do you even know what a data bank is? What do you mean? The Casio data bank. Uh, no, I have no idea. What you're yeah, so he's talking about a data bank, right? You don't even know. I'm, I'm thinking, like, in my head. Like, she probably not from that era. Like, she doesn't even know. So when he's going to say, like, getting it confiscated and, uh, and stuff like that, and playing it around school, I know exactly what Plum is saying, right? Because I was, because that that data bank, yeah, graduated into a proper TV, like, chunk control watch, right? Okay. With the infrared stuff. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, like, no, yeah, I, I, I know thing, what but... he is talking about. I didn't, I, I knew just from what, how um, Flum described it, right? Like I knew what ex- what kind of thing he was talking about, but I didn't know what it looked like. Um, I remember we had a previous guest on who was talking about the TV controls or something. <laughs> and then I was so confused because it sounded like to me that he had a watch that he brought to school and everyone thought he was the shit, right? Because he had that new Casio watch and he was able to change channels of TV through the, watch which i still don't get what he meant like if that was yeah, because possible. because yeah because probably in your year you never had a tv in your classroom right no i did but how are you able to change the channels of a tv from your watch because it's basically an infrared remote right on your watch the, the casio data bank to be honest right when it started it didn't have the remote control aspect to it it was a calculator watch yeah and to be honest, right, it's so dumb because you couldn't really use it. Like, you know, you you, you mispress the plus button when it should have been the multiply button. And anybody that had one also had a calculator. Right? Like, So it was totally useless, but it was very gimmicky. And then it graduated for some reason. Yeah, maybe because at the time, right, a lot of the TVs were made by Japanese companies. Maybe yeah. they weren't like Korean, right, or Chinese, you know. And so it was very, became very easy and maybe it was a quirky idea. You know, one of those boardroom meetings where someone said, why don't we make it? So it's infrared like, and then everybody goes, yeah, that's a great idea. But nobody actually stops to think, is that a great idea? <laughs> anyway, it got made, but because it wasn't that great idea, it didn't actually last. Yeah, I think, you know, Dan, the, the, the data bank, honestly, I thought it was my, my recollection anyway. I might be just romanticizing the past, but I think it was pretty useful because we had we didn't have mobile phones, so we had landlines, and remembering everyone's numbers wasn't so easy. And you, of course, you had to enter the same the text uh, the same way that we had yeah. SMSs, right? So you had yeah. number one was ABC and so on. So so you had to enter all of that stuff. And then, how do you remember everyone's home phone number? Like I I I remember vividly using that thing. Um, yeah. But then I I being OCD, like even in my current iPhone phone book, I have. Um, name and surname i'm like i'm quite some people have random my brother-in-law has nicknames like like toes or like you know one yeah. whatever nickname his mates are. And i'm yeah. like I, I just rather save the name and the surname yeah. and be all sort of method. so i used yeah. to be the same with that thing and and the remote thing i i guess today so i have this like harmony unifying system where some devices are infrared controlled some devices are bluetooth like you know the fire tv or whatever apple tv and this has an infrared sort of dongle where it, it projects whatever needs to happen. So the way that the, the system works is you press, I want to watch um, 
Apple TV and it sort of turns on the AV receiver, it turns on the TV and it turns on everything that needs to be on, sets it to the right, you know, input setting and whatever. It still uses infrared. So I think the concept was good, but the problem is the programming was difficult. And and that was yeah, the hard right. part. I remember the name when you used to come across, right? Because you're an LCD crystal, right? LCD display. The name would just like, just slowly ticker across the mm. display like that. Damn, I used to hate it when you had to type in names like Christopher. I mean, like, come on, you know, you know, Christopher, come on, like, give me a break. Yeah. yeah. Good time. What was the original question? What was the original question? Oh, how much time you spend on watches a day? If you, if you had to guess, because you do a lot of stuff. You write the blog, you make creative videos uh, on Instagram, you do photos, your captions are often, you know, sometimes philosophical and tells a story. You do store, like you do actual Instagram stories. Like, how much time do you spend? Yeah, yeah your 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 content makes my brain hurt. <laughs> you know, I've got a very <laughs> immature brain, and uh, when I look at stuff, and I, I think, oh man, I have to look at this with a dictionary next to me. <laughs> Nonsense, Dan. Come on, I I, I guess this this so so having to admit an answer is 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 quite jarring to my brain but then like i said earlier because i try and connect things to watches all the time one could argue on the one hand that i spend my entire day thinking about watches but in in practice i don't think it's it's that bad so uh, yesterday as an example was a fairly busy day for me and so i had various meetings, project meetings, uh, and in between, in my lunch break, I might have scrolled to to look at the new releases from Watches and Wonders. I read a few papers uh, on nickel, so, you know, commodity shortages. And so in doing that, I thought about EVs and and, and the shortage of EVs. And then I was like, I wonder how this will affect the watch industry. But I never really followed that through because I was too busy. But on the previous day, uh, I had time after reading those things. So I was like, oh, let me think this through. And I kind of applied it further. And then that's typically how I'll end up writing a longish story. Mm-hmm. Uh, yesterday, I saw a collected man posted that they're going to do auctions now. Mm-hmm. And I had a lot of thoughts on the matter around, you know, because I previously wrote about double risk, loop this, and all these uh, different auction platforms. And now a collected man is doing it. And I think just as a sidelight, I think that's a good thing for consumers, but I had thoughts on what I would maybe want to write as a long form story, just sharing some thoughts, but I didn't have time. So I didn't do it. Um, mm. So I'd say in general, it depends on the day, but uh, yeah, a, a good chunk of it. I'd say 35, 40% maybe. Mm. Okay. Mm. Well, follow up question to that, because we were also talking about it. What, how would you, how would you, you know, give your opinions on the online auction platform and now with so many online platforms popping up like what's your general take on it from i guess since you think so much you consider both sides on both the consumer side versus the retail and the brand side yeah uh, and the third party and the third party trading side <laughs> so, so let's just let's just sort of like break this down into a few silos so for starters there's this insane premium that's that's charged by gray dealers Mm -hmm. where they don't actually have to do a lot of work 
And 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 I think consumers suffer for that. So simple stuff like you know Pepsi, Daytona, these types of watches, they they sell themselves, right? And and so what they what they're doing is they're finding people who are in a crunch and using working capital to get it off them quickly, and then just adding on 25, 30%. And when you when you speak to them, they'll say, Yeah, but we have to pay taxes and we have to do this and that, and we're running a proper business, we have overheads. Yeah, that's nice. But who asked them to do that? Like the, the, if if we had a peer to peer platform where we can just say okay, I don't know what the market price of these things is right mm-hmm. now, but let's say a Pepsi for the sake of argument is fifteen thousand pounds mm-hmm. that dealers are paying owners, right? And then they're going to the market and putting them there for like eighteen to twenty thousand pounds. So that's for the sake of argument, let's say twenty thousand. So they're adding on five thousand, so thirty three percent markup after they do their taxes and overheads. Maybe they're making you know ten to fifteen. Fine, but that like they don't have to do that. If if you and I connected on an on an auction platform, and you know, say the market the dealer market value is fifteen, and so for the sake of argument, I paid you sixteen, and me in an open market would have had to otherwise pay a dealer twenty. That's a win for everyone, right? Mm-hmm. Because you you're happy getting sixteen instead of fifteen, and I'm I'm happy paying sixteen instead of twenty. And okay, these are just round numbers for the sake of argument, but you get the point. Now, that works with these sort of commodity type watches. But when it comes to things like, I don't know, you know, Vianney's Minute Repeaters and all these really, really insane special watches, uh, there's an interview that Silas Walton did on, on this topic about what service they bring. Like, I think there's, there's, there's value in their brand, uh, the trust, the, the sort of lifestyle angle, the the way that people spending a million dollars want to feel when they're buying these watches. It's 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 something they add. And there's also the, the peace of mind, which we, we don't currently have in an auction platform. People still feel nervous. They still feel uneasy. So for those watches, I think that it's fair enough for, for people like a collected man to, to, to take a cut for the services they offer. Mm-hmm. And... Other than that, though, I think that auction platforms are good for consumers because they they get closer to a market price. Now, the problem here yes. is when yeah. when the platforms take a, a huge chunk, like twenty five percent. What for? That, I feel that's 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 a gap that needs to be closed. I think that uh, like that's why maybe a collected man running an auction is it is it, debatable. It will depend on the watches, but something more closer to uh, like loop this is a good platform for example but then they they have high fees i think it was 500 for listing i don't know the exact details of how much they charge on on it's sales 500 per listing and five percent on sales yeah so i think that's actually getting closer to the right answer i think that that the the the, the, the percentage on sales i believe should vary according to the watch there should be categories of watches, things like I said, the commodity type watches should should have the lowest Lower. possible fee mm. because most of the time they're sealed. Most of the time they're still under warranty. And 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 so verification, like people don't even open those watches. They just sort of verify the authenticity. Uh, they, they, they have a purchase receipt because people are kind of just moving them on. Those don't need any quality control. They don't need any peace of mind, additional premium they should just be passed between people at for the lowest, you know, uh, friction fees, as it were. 
But as you go higher up the scale, rarity matters, you know, super vintage stuff, which needs authentication and so on. Yeah. What I mean is that the the premium that gets paid should be justified. There shouldn't just be a blanket number Mm. that that everyone has to pay for Mm. the service. That makes no sense to me. Yeah, I kind of get that. So what you're saying is because like right now, a consumer will buy a watch, let's say you flung buy one, right? And then, you know, you know, you can actually, because anybody at the end of the day can be a dealer, right? Right now in this world. So let's say you get the watch and then, you know what, you get an offer from me and I, you know, I'm a collector too. And then I suddenly say, you, you know, you got 15, I'll pay you 20 for it. And then, and then, you know what, Jacqueline sees I've got it. And then she goes, oh, I'll pay you 25, right? When actually, you know, she could have just gone to you and just said, you know, well, I just want to pay the, the true market price rather than an inflated kind of price but it's a very interesting topic because people would argue that market price is what someone's willing to pay for a watch right like does it have to be representative of you know but uh, i understand your point like uh, auctions are 25 percent or 26 now and i think uh 26 i think eclectic man is 15 15 yeah and, and ten on ten on other some piece ten on I think the piece the more expensive the pieces is about ten, the the lesser yeah it's fifteen and then yeah loop this like you said is 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 that really true like five is that five percent yeah that's that's pretty pretty low so maybe what you're seeing as well is people seeing that looking at the auction houses which are twenty six and then thinking hang which on is a ridiculous minute. yeah maybe we can um. Cut into there's that. A, yeah, there's a gap there. Yeah. To... The, the thing is, right? The thing is, there, there should be no reason for, for any. So, so the people that have the highest overheads and, and bricks and mortar establishments and so on, they're the worst people to be running these platforms because by definition, they have to charge a higher fee to cover their sort of extra cost. But what I'm what we what we should question is the relevance of the or the or the necessity of those extra costs. And so like a completely online platform would be the way forward. But then the problem is, how do you verify things? And how do you build that peace of mind? So it would be almost like a collected man spin-off where the trust is in the founders rather than the platform. And this thing has its own sort of books, its own balance mm-hmm. sheet, and it doesn't have to justify the expense of all the random stuff that goes on. And and I, I don't think there's, there's a clear-cut answer at this point, but mm-hmm. I think the thinking needs to move towards minimizing transaction costs and and sort of finding a way to get consumers comfortable with what a sort of completely Mm. online platform does and this idea of getting verified pieces every single transaction i think is probably not necessary yeah i I do think though to be fair to these platforms like collective man let's just i mean since we're talking about collective man is that for that whole branding and i know i'm I, i you know like for a consumer like yourself, Lam, I'm assuming you don't really need that reassurance, right? But a lot of a lot of consumers in luxury, it is about the imagery. It is about like that that feeling, that perception, and that feeling costs money. <laughs> yeah, like uh, whether you like it or not, it costs money. So if somebody just put up a website, listed the same products as Collected Man, but didn't look like Collected Man and just looked like a Spotify site, actually said Spotify at the bottom. And didn't have all that investment into photos and everything. You just wouldn't be able to, I mean, forget being able to charge a premium. You might not even sell the watch, right? 
Yeah. I mean, Silas said it on his interview, I believe. Like he, he, he saw a gap where taking really nice photos and posting them on eBay, his stuff mm. sold for a higher price and mm. quicker than other people. So mm. yeah, of course. But, but then since he did it, everyone else is doing it. There's so many others, There's, <laughs> you know, Mr. Watchley, mm. Watchley, every single new dealer now that that's trying to tap into that area is doing the same. Awesome photography. I mean, let's be honest, in the last couple of years, watch photography in general has gone mm. into a different league, right? Like yes. it's just everything looks delicious. You see something, you're like, I need that. Like, why? You don't. And, and, and there's also a bit of work to be done on ourselves on, around how much we let this type of stuff affect us, right? This is the reason why brands are moving to like this whole influencer marketing stuff. Uh, like brands like Oris are sending unreleased watches to just random members of the community people like who are collectors who enjoy the watches not necessarily have you know 50 to 100,000 followers they're just generally known people in, in in the in the watch community and these people who take really nice photos are getting access to these watches and taking amazing pictures of them and it's influencing the market of course they're going to keep mm. doing it but but people need to just I, this, I write about this all the time. That's why I do it. I'm like, you guys don't need to buy every single watch. Uh, I, it's very I have philosophical. You have a very philosophical like approach to uh, this hobby. I mean, just going back, because I did actually want to bring something up, but I didn't want to cut you up, which was, you know, how you think about watches and you ingrain it like in a lot of what you do, you know, it's, it's kind of like your currency of thinking. Um, like, that's actually very similar to me because I see, you know, watches are in essence, right? They give you a measurement of time, right? And time is the most expensive commodity in my book. Yeah. Like it's the most valuable and how you use your time, how you perceive time. Right. And even how, let's say, you know, problems resolve over time, you know, like on a very superficial layer, we always say, you know, give when someone's hurting, we always say, give them time. Right. Like, and even when we, you know, when we talk about making friendships and we always say, like, you know, time will tell, you know, on, on this person. Like, if you really think about it, yeah, time is the master. You know, if you can master time, which ironically the British kind of did with the clocks and the watches and then had the British Empire, you know, it's a very powerful thing in that kind of respect. But if you can master your own time, yeah, that is a, a very difficult thing to achieve. And but a very almost um, a serene place to get to, right? Yeah, that's my uh, philo I, philosophical I mean, side coming out there. Yeah, I, I enjoy that. I enjoy that very much. Yeah, it's it's, it's something. It's something. Yeah. Well, you're you're hundred percent right. I think Buffett even said the same thing. He's like, you know, that that's the bottom line. Is I can buy anything I want except time. So. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, man. Very and then the so. the other thing you said, which was the um, the way you know the watches and the photography is elevated. You know, actually, you know, if we don't move away from watches and we look at just influencers that wear nice stuff, right? And I'm looking at you know I follow you know some people that dress nicely, and I'm looking at these photos and I'm thinking, hang on a minute, like you look great, yeah, because your body's great. <laughs> Like, I don't look like that when I wear it, you know, like I'm five foot eight, you know, I'm not six foot, six foot two, you know, and, uh, you know, that's not even including the makeup they put on. It's just imagery has that influence on us biologically. Right. And you're touching on basically 
the impact of social media on our consumerism, like developed habits, right? Because consumerism probably developed, I don't know, 80s, late 70s, right? Where, to be honest, most of us have got what we need, right? So how, how can we get people to buy more shit that they don't need, right? And, yeah. you know, Instagram has ramped that up to a different level because the imagery like that was in magazines originally where you'd have to buy a magazine, look at it, get influenced, is now there on 24-7. And something that I think you do um, kind of goes against that grain because everything that you seem to put out there uh, seems to have gone through some thought process rather than being reactive or, or something. It's something that I think you seem to take pride in. Perhaps, yeah. I think, yeah, you're right. I think that's on point. I take pride in it because, and and this is on reflection after I wrote that post. You might have you might remember about status, social status, and for a long time I was under this impression that, you know, saying that you don't succumb to hype was you know moving yourself to one side in effect. But what it actually is is, and and I'm guilty of this, saying, oh well, I don't buy into hype. I'm the anti-hype. That in itself is a version of status. So the person saying that is saying, well, I'm better than you because mm. I don't succumb to hype. I'm which above is that. Ironic. Yeah. It's yeah, ironic so, because so, so. being anti-hype is also in some ways a, a type of hype. <laughs> okay, well, and, and, and weirdly, Jack, you say that. And I think that's exactly what it is. I think that today people now take more pride in saying, I don't buy into the hype than they do wearing a hype watch, which is, which is weird, but okay. And so uh, how do you, the, the reason why it's interesting to me is because as you said, now initially consumers sort of got into this. So if we just play a, a quick sort of timeline version, first you could buy, let's use Rolex, the easiest one. Everyone's familiar with how it went down, kind of. You buy it in the window, Sports models were available, except maybe the Daytona, but still, you know, you could get them. Then those disappeared because they were slightly above retail now. And so they were easy money. But then people started sort of keeping them. And AD started using them as bundled, bundled offer sort of carrots to dangle. And then slowly this became a thing where more and more people outside the hobby realized how easy it seemed because people were like, this is underrated, that is underrated. And so this snowball started and that was fine for a while. And what you hear a lot today is collectors lamenting the fact that this is now a super hyped industry and they can't get anything and all of this stuff. But what's more interesting is how the brands have reacted in, 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 in light of this new development. So now, you know, Basel world's kind of gone there's watches and wonders, but for instance, a few friends of mine were talking last night about how Patek's probably going to drop a few other watches, you know, in the rest of the year, like when they, they did the, the green Nautilus and then a few weeks and months later, they dropped other random stuff through the year. So, so now brands are like, well, we're going to make hay while the sun shines and they're going to keep releasing new stuff. Uh, and people are expected to keep buying it. But the problem is how many people have this sort of bottomless pit of money to just feed into uh, all these new releases that are now coming way yeah. quicker than ever before. It, 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 it yeah, doesn't I, make sense to me. I agree. We had this conversation privately, like between the three of us, which was, 
I wouldn't say like our buying power is crap, you know, like Long Jacqueline and me. And then when we can't get pieces, like you just have to just admit there are just so many people that are way like whales above you, right? There's just so many of them, right? Um, and you're right, you know, brands are really, really cashing in at, 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 at this stage, making the most of it, like being almost pretty cutthroat. Um, but, you know, everything is cyclical. To, I have something to say about Everything this. is cyclical. Again, we go back to that, that, that issue of time, you know, it, it'll just eventually even out again. Jack. Excuse me. But will it even out? Because I thought it would until I went to Switzerland and visited the boutiques. And it took a while for, you know, uh, sales of brands to kind of open up and, and talk frankly, which is if you want this, well, first, you know, there's that initial conversation about, hey, I'm really interested in this and this and this. I know that there's probably a wait list. I mean, I know there's 100% a wait list. I don't mind beyond that list if you want, if you, if I just wait, right? Like if you can confirm that I can get it, I don't mind waiting. But then the problem is you can't get on that list. So then you yeah, ask yeah, the yeah. question, so wait, so if I can't get what, when, when, Five years ago, it used to be you walk into a store, sport models would just be sitting there. You try on the few pieces, you like one, you purchase it, right? As goes with all the other goods. Now it's like, okay, I'm a new consumer. I'm a new client of the brand. You walk into the boutique, there's nothing available. So you look at the, the paper print catalog or you go on the website, they show you, they walk you through the website and then you pick out, oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. How can I buy it? Well, there's none available. Oh, so is there a wait list? Yes, but, you can, uh, but the wait list is closed. So what do you buy? Well, when there's nothing available and then you ask the obvious question. So what do you have? Oh, we don't really have any in stock or in the store. We get shipments um, two times uh, bi-weekly or whatever. And then after a while you talk to them and then you get the sense, oh, okay. So it's not that you don't have stuff to sell, but it's more like, okay, well, what do I buy to get the stuff I um, want? I, I, and then, I, I, but wait, and then you realize, okay, to get something that's uh, 50000 uh, $50, $60,000, you might have to spend five times that amount. But it's okay. even more. Yeah, well, Which well, is information they don't tell you, right? Yeah, and then, well, I, let me finish. And that plays in the initial question of what we were talking about, which is, well... Why do you think grain market prices are that uh, that high? It's because the barrier to entry um, for these brands is that high for you to get standard sport models because you have to pay an ultra premium. Dan. Okay, so oh, thanks. I was dying to go. Right. So, I know. I was dying too. I was trying to get it out there. <laughs> I was gonna say, yeah. Like I don't have a crystal ball to say, you know, that this is gonna happen, but you know. The watch industry exists to make money, right? And they are making money. And the next thing is they're going to think is, how can I make even more money, right? And yeah, you're saying you need to spend this much. At the end of the conversation, there just aren't enough watches right now, right? For the, 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 for the demand. 
right? So it's not going to take that much of a genius to, especially, you know, considering a lot of these CEOs don't really stay in the position that long to go, do you know what? Let's increase production because we actually can do it, right? And then start. And then, and then one brand starts raking those figures in mm-hmm. and the next guy sees it and he thinks, do you know what? That's a good idea. I'm going to do the same thing, right? See if the market price can hold. And do you know what? If it doesn't hold, I'm out of the position anyway. I got my KPIs. I look great. I'm on to the next job, right? So if, because how can they increase more, make more money? They have to make more pieces, right? And there's clearly a demand for it. Would you not want to tap into that a little bit? Okay, we're not talking like increase like 200% here, 15% incrementally, right? To satisfy the market to some extent. It's possible. Well, this is this is a broader question around brand management. So, you know, at some point, if Rolex, Rolex, I, I keep coming back to them, but they're not a very good example. Uh, Look so, at no, Patek. it's the so, easiest to get, though, I guess. Well, yeah, I guess, but, but also it's it, they're very different in many many ways. Like they don't answer to shareholders and so on. So I guess mm. look at Patek, right? So the, outside of the 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 thinking of the Stern Senior, he's now releasing all these wild colors in complicated watches. Why do you think that is? I I think a few people have said this already online as well. Is that they they argue he's tapping into the younger consumers need for something funky and you know modern but also trying to stay true to what makes patek patek Patek. right and yeah and so they that that's one view uh others are saying things like well a green dial perpetual calendar like that's never been done before and and so we probably won't see this again for a while implying that it's something very extraordinary similar to how the Rolex Hulk uh, green dial was. But actually, the same guy released a Tiffany uh, <laughs> Nautilus. Like, like, like if, 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 if you were trying to get collectors into, you know, the complicated pieces, it would have not been a Nautilus. It would have been, I don't know, a 5370p in, in the Nautilus, color, I mean, the Tiffany color dial. Why, why do it in the most hyped case it doesn't make sense right so I, I i kind of wonder what they're up to but in insofar as your question your, your suggestion about increasing production and alongside the, the 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 argument that everything's cyclical what happens when the cycle goes the wrong way there'll be the market flooded with all the stuff and mm. maybe the brand value de- deteriorates so bad that in the next up cycle they actually aren't worth as much as they are now. So they yeah. have to debate with themselves what they view the market cycle is at and also how long it's going to last, both up and down. Mm. So you want to say something? Mm. No, I was just saying that's true. And that's probably why the brands you said, Rolex, Pata, you know, the independent brands can actually, you say, the main thing is the shareholders, you know, like they can have a long-term approach and try and, a bit longer, longer term approach than let's say the conglomerate brands. But you know, why is the case not, why is this not the case with Omega right now? I mean, are Omega watches going for like four pre four X? Well, yeah, they are now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I spoke too soon. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> by the way, by the way, you, you say that there are examples of the brands that are doing this, that are that are absolutely increasing production. The problem is they, they're trying to. So so take Chopek, for example, right? I remember yeah. maybe two years ago, there was a watch event in London where, uh, I forgot what the watch event was called, but it's where a bunch of smaller brands exhibit their watches. Chopek was there. No one it's cared like about London it. Watch Show or something, right? Maybe, yeah, a smaller one, like not, not a really big one. It was a very small venue. Uh, nice show, actually. There were a lot of cool, one of them was Chopek anyway. And I mean, the, the, so, so we got to meet them, super nice people. I mean, watches are cool at the time. They weren't priced at the levels they are now, but I think yeah. you were getting a lot of watch for your money, right? I agree. And, and, and then the, the, once the hype train kind of came in with, first started with the, well, the usual, the Nautilus and the Royal Oak, then the overseas followed. Then everyone's like, what's the next one? Uh, I guess it was the, the GP Laureato maybe, uh, and then various other cheaper options, alternatives. And then one of them was Chopek. And I guess the hype with Chopek started with the release of that Ratrapante. And that was, I guess, a while ago now, six months maybe or more, a year, I don't recall, but then everyone was signing up to this Antarctic, which is 20,000 pounds or something for the simple one. And I guess they're selling, they're selling those well in advance of when they can make them. And, and I think that's them, that's, that's a version of a brand cashing in on the current hype, because what's happening is if they're doing non-refundable, non-refundable deposits today, but they're talking about delivery in like two, three years, and people are doing it. So, so people using today's mindset to fuel three years time watch demand, or that, that's just bonkers. Like I, for me, unless it's something that you deeply love, a trivia or something where you're already connected with the brand, you are 100% sure that you want that watch regardless of what, you know, when it comes to you, then no problem. But sound like a random sports watch, which, you know, it's unclear whether you'd even like it in three years' time. Some people will tell you, or they'll tell themselves anyway, that today, yeah, they really love it. They love it today, but a lot of the time when people love things today, it's influence. And, and this is everyone, myself included. No one can sort of operate their opinions in a vacuum. It's not, it's not something that anyone can do unless you just don't have contact with people. So when people are on Instagram making statements like, oh, I really love this, it's not because of the hype. I feel they're just lying to themselves. Mm. Hmm. Uh, I think we talked. I've got to say, though, I quite like that watch. <laughs> After all that. Okay. I think not, it's a good looking watch. I think uh, it's, yeah, yeah, it's not yeah, a criticism yeah, against the watch. You're using like, it as an not, example, not... right? Which yeah, one? It, 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 Which one? The Antarctic. It's the sports watch of Chaffet, right? I actually think it's a very well balanced uh, watch some would say safe design um yeah but it you know if you turn it back right the the i think what flum is saying as well is if you actually turn that and look at the finishing and what you actually get as a value proposition compared to what you can get on the market for that kind of money it's actually quite good yeah like it's a great watch um i think yeah it's it's not trying to be a royal oak or a nautilus you know well exactly but 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 i think that that and, and that's okay and there, there, there are many reasons why people would like that watch and and there's mm. clearly many good reasons why it is doing so well so i'm not i'm not at all saying that it doesn't deserve the amount of 
you know, praise and the, the, the demand that, that it has today. I'm just using it as an example of how a brand sort of doing, because the price went up a lot, right? In the last yeah. year or two, I think. And, and so that, that's not unusual. Lots of brands, apparently Patek just did a, a price increase at the boutiques like a couple of weeks ago, unannounced, like it just went there, just a random little 6%, I think. Um, and, and all the other brands are doing it. I even wrote one about Jean's price increases, which maybe were overdue. Uh, you're not getting more watch for your money. They're just yep. taking more of the pie. which Especially because pie. the market price on the secondary market is an indicator of what people are willing to pay, right? And they're, they're probably seeing, you know, they don't make the money on the secondary market. They're like thinking, man, I'm leaving a lot of money on the table. So mm. it goes back to what I said, you know, watch brands, they look to make more money. And right now, when I'm not increasing production, what's the best way to do it? I'm going to increase the price of the product. It's not that similar to when I... You know, I don't want to hark on and just batter watch brands, you know, as a dentist, right? Like my time was limited. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if I want to increase how much money I make, I'm going to charge by time, you know, and that's how dentists thought. It was like, okay, one pound a minute, two pound a minute, three pound a minute, you know, like it's down to the minute. So it's only when like you get to a point, right? You, you basically push it until a point where nobody's paying you that much anymore, right? And you say, okay, I can't get the patients in now. Yeah, maybe I need to either stabilize it and just calibrate it so this is the new norm for a while, or I lower them. Yeah, but if you lower them, you look crap, don't you? <laughs> so, this is, yeah, you're right. Prices, prices imply something about your brand as well. Something, mm-hmm. something I spoke about before. Uh, it turns out I always, luckily, and this is kind of why I started that blog was because we I always have chats about certain topics and then later someone will bring it up again. And I'll go, oh yeah. Yes. And I, I just find, and, and it's easier to start from like a basis rather than from scratch each time. So that's handy. Mm. But, okay, well, why, why did you start the blog then? Like what was the initial motivation or incentive to do so? It's, it's exactly that. So, so what happened was uh, in the beginning of me posting these thoughts on Instagram, sort of putting it out there, there was a lot of feedback just via stories. So this is just text in stories, the way Daniel writes his book reviews. And so uh, after a while, new people would, would, would chat to me and discuss topics that I posted about before. And so I started saving them as highlights, going back mm-hmm. into the archive. And, and then the problem became, after a while, finding a specific uh, highlight was a challenge because you'd have so many in a row. You're just like, how the hell do I find this? Thing? So I was like, well, I had this old blog, which was actually formed when, if you remember, I mentioned that startup that I was trying to bootstrap, you know, when I took this job. So that at that time, I'd started this blog. And it was just about motivation, uh, you know, improving your productivity, this type of thing. And so I just sort of changed the name and then added blog posts, the same stories that I posted on Instagram before, but now in a format which I could search for. And then as I had new thoughts, instead of posting them in a story, I just posted on the blog. That's how it started. Mm. And now can, when people yeah. discuss topics, I just, I just find the link. There's a search box at the bottom and I remember what roughly it was about and I just find the right article and so easy to then have a discussion because people say what's your thoughts on this i go send them a link i'm like after you read this then come mm-hmm. chat to me it's super easy yeah 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 like that's the thing with like i've stopped 
necessarily putting i put the books that i've read on stories now but i never write anymore because that's only last for 24 hours right and i used to get loads of people just messaging me and say can you give me the book list can you give me the book list like i want to read the books you know sometimes i think well you know i got a book list from looking at the internet you know so all you have to do is just go on the internet but you know they want to look at my book list and now that's why i've made them into permanent posts because i think it's also more presentable more digestible that way you can really flick through and just see you know it's quite marked out quite well so i totally get what you mean and actually it kind of resonates with this podcast as well because you know i have this chat you know with jacqueline and long long we talk about watches and we'd probably be doing it anyway right and then we bring on a, a new person and you know it's always good to meet somebody else in a, in a watch environment and then we just like talk about watches right um but you don't want to keep regurgitating the same conversation every single mm-hmm. time and you know the watch sphere you know we already said watches you know taking three years to get watch stories also don't get made like daily news yeah so you don't really want to there isn't that much to talk we yeah really to talk about sometimes you know and so this is why Absolutely. i like this closed environment if you want to listen to me listen to what i say yeah or have a i know it's a one-way conversation but go to the podcast right and then you know i reach on the podcast we reach thousands of people right now and i could never do that physically like have a thousand people having a conversation with me right you know i have these like different groups uh sort of different friends some some are like local some are based all over the world and there's so many interesting chats and there's a few of them who i speak to on the phone i like a lot like at least a couple of times a week, often for at least, you know, 30 minutes or more at a time. And I always think, I'm like, man, this would have been such a good episode for any podcast. Like this is, this was such an interesting conversation. Mm-hmm. And I guess that that's useful when you have a podcast like yours, because you can just bring those same topics into a podcast conversation and then just sort of play it through. I really love that. I, the, the, I always wanted, and I think of Clubhouse being the alternative. And I think now, since we were on Clubhouse initially, I think they now allow recordings and you can replay sessions. That's quite handy as well. So um, I'm going to try and do that at some point. Yeah, I think you do quite well because the thing with the podcast, yeah, because the longer form content, I had this conversation with a friend, platforms attract a certain demographic of personality right how they want to digest the material so you have like uh instagram yeah which is quite quick already then you've got like short video content which is what 10 seconds you know attracts a certain you know people that are spending that i don't want to judge right but people are spending that much time on that kind of stuff right well i'm not doing it okay that's all i'm going to say about it yeah then podcast is a another medium which takes a certain individual yeah well you have to be able to listen for that long right i mean our podcasts go for a long time and then you've got like reddit you know people actually taking the time to read no no imagery you know you've got twitter which is literally like 30 characters um every medium is out there now to satisfy a certain audience right and i think the way you want it it depends on how you want to deliver yourself as well right like so i think with something like you flum is you love to go so much in depth all about the detail it takes time to do that right 
and someone that's willing to spend that time. I mean, you're obviously on the website. So people go on the website, they read, you know, it attracts that kind of audience. Mm. Yeah, I, I, like I said, I sort of flex my involvement to, to meet my own schedule. Right? So when, when I don't have the time, that, that's probably the main reason why any of these like steady state platforms, like yours, your podcast and any platform really, it works through, you know, momentum as they call it. So an Amazon product lists new as it does really well in sales in consecutive weeks, it ranks higher. And I think the same is on, you know, podcasts, for instance, you, if you do a really good episode consistently every week, you, you inevitably rank higher over time. But if you do one episode every you know, month or two or three, it'll be difficult for you to get traction. And I think it's probably my, the reason why I stick to it as a really casual hobby, because I get super competitive with myself. And so if I started tracking metrics and trying to grow, uh, I'd start putting in too much effort, which I don't have the time to do. So this way, doesn't matter one way or another and I kind of it's it's relaxed and mentally speaking it, it, it's easier to deal with I think mm. Mm. yeah I mean well yeah. while we're on the topic of the blog you recently wrote about the Omega in, 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 in Swatch Drop um, mm. which <laughs> I read but I wanted to ask you again like yeah what did you what do you what did you think of it what what Actually, I want to ask you this: Like, if you were Swatch, what would you have done anything differently, or made everything the same? Without hindsight, or design? with hindsight? Mm. Well, with hindsight first, because I'm interested in to hear. Well, are you not talking about the design, right? You're talking about sort of no. I'm warmth. talking about just how they handle the the situation and and um. Yeah, so I think what was very surprising to me, and I didn't, I don't think I knew this at the time of writing, um, was how few watches they made uh, available for for purchase on the day. So that was really surprising to me, and I think. I agree. Hayek said, uh, you know, that the people in Geneva, they're doing watches and wonders. They have the watches and we have the wonders. So that was his quote. And <laughs> I think it's true. If Think about any release you've seen at Watches and Wonders, including like the really, really exciting ones, maybe. And the Swatch hype was, I don't know, 50 times that, if, if not more. Now, that just speaks to something obvious, which you, you obviously all know, which is that the, the accessibility price point uh, makes a difference. Mass market uh, products like that, coupled with hype, are unbeatable, right? But but they they almost did all of this and didn't capitalize on the success because they didn't have the stuff to sell. And and if they did, this hype would have continued even longer, right? Because then you'd have hundreds and thousands of people posting their watches online and uh. getting even more traction and people who didn't get it will be like, Oh, I really like that. I want one too. And so the amount of mileage they would have got from the initial hype would have been, I think far greater. Instead, what we see is nothing much. It was hyped and now everyone's moved on at least in the watch world, but also outside. I know people who, people who aren't into watches at all, but are my friends, you know, aside from that and they follow me on Instagram and, Sometimes 
see the stories that I post. And one of them texted me, they were like in Dubai and there was a queue outside the mall. And they sent me a photo saying, the only reason I know that what this is about is because you posted about the Moonwatch or Moon Swatch. And, and so even those people would, would they'd be interested because they'd be seeing what's going on and kind of curious. And now, well, no one really cares. I think the people that want to get it will eventually get it. And I think the, the loser in this case was the brand in terms of maximizing on the hype. But long-term, overall, I think it, it's not going to be bad for Omega. I, I joked about it being uh, cannibalizing on their own Omega sales, but really the people that are in the market for buying a five grand chronograph are not going to settle for a 250 pound plastic watch as an alternative. It's not an, it's not an alternative at all, in my opinion. Uh, so as far as brand strategy goes, this doesn't dilute Omega in my opinion, I, but I'm no marketing expert. Mm. I think a popular opinion I was reading online, which was, well, uh, you, you know, before the moon swatch, people were spending a lot more to buy the Omega uh, Speedmaster. But now, you know, people could buy one that looks, I mean, identical design wise, just not different colors and whatnot for, for much, much less. And they were just talking about the, um, like how much do you value your design of the, of the Speedmaster to like produce at it at such a low cost in, in terms of design? And I was like, oh, I, I think that's an interesting point because can you imagine if the Nautilus, like they made a plastic Nautilus or, or, or I don't know, bio ceramic for 300 bucks? Like how much do you think of your design and, and of your brand to do that and i was like yeah i think you have a point point." Yeah, and i think also we have to remember back in you know why is swatch group one of the most powerful watch conglomerates out there is because of swatch right and what they did with that plastic watch um you know when everything was going kind of very uh quartzy mm. so it's interesting that a lot of people got into this like moon swatch hype but there's probably a lot of people and a lot, maybe kids, that didn't even know about the Moonwatch, right? But now do. And how many will that actually translate to those actually one day owning a Moonwatch, right? Like putting that seed in their head. Now, considering the hype it created, it's brought awareness to a Moonwatch from a marketing point of view. And in terms of Swatch as a conglomerate, also they made money out of it, like in a really, really mm, accessible way, um, also, you know, not too damaging on, if at all, on the Omega brand. And it just gives you that thing, oh, I want to own one, right? Mm -hmm. Or have experience of one when I'm older. I fully agree, Dan. I think that, that that's a good point, well made, in the sense that you will never, like there are more people that hadn't heard, heard of a Moonwatch that will now know about it than people who were trying to buy a Moonwatch but now we'll buy a cheaper one instead. You see, like that ratio is very much in favor of this being a good idea rather than a bad one. Mm. Yeah, I think most people, if they wanted the moon watch, right, they've got one because it's quite an accessible price point. I, I know that sounds really like, uh, you know, <laughs> no, I agree. dickish of me. It's, it's an affordable, you know, even if you can't afford to pay it right, right, I'm sure you can pay the finance, go through finance packages, right? Um, you know, so That's people who idea. then subsequently then actually paid a, 
uh, for a moon swatch, right? Like I've got one. Yeah. But it, with that, do I care? Is that 250 pounds? I don't really like, it's okay. You know, it, it's like a whim. Yeah, I'll just go and buy one. It's interesting because I was thinking about buying one. Right. And I was thinking, we were, you know, <laughs> we were both thinking about buying one. Right. And then I we actually saying, went to the drop. Yeah, I actually, actually went to the drop. Went. And then it got to the point where, okay, we're not going to get one. Right. And now I'm like, I don't want it. <laughs> well, you only didn't want it after I showed you the discoloration photo. <laughs> yeah, I saw the discoloration photo um, coming onto the person's wrist. And I'm like, oh, you know what? Like, uh, yeah, two, it, 250 pounds for a watch. You still, it doesn't forgive like production issues, you know? Like I still want, I would prefer it was even a cheaper product, but it didn't do that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So would that, you, that wasn't you, like. Would you get one, Flum? I yeah. So so I said I would definitely get one for my kid. I I personally don't want one for myself. I don't think I will use it. Uh, so why bother? Like, it, I think it that's might a good cool point as well. One real. That's a good point as well. People that buy a proper moon watch, yeah, I probably do have like kids right or we'll have kids at some point and then what is a good way to get a kid into watches right you talk about history all the stuff that is great about that romantic stuff about watches it's there in the moon watch yeah give him the moon watch yeah you don't care if he bashes it up yeah you really don't care yeah. oh yeah and, and by so I, I do this i try I, I sort of don't force watches on my kid but what i do is try and talk to him about why i like stuff and what i found i think i wrote about this one day was when i try and explain why i like a watch to my kid i have to be really clear i can't talk about really philosophical nonsense like oh i you know this person's life story resonates with me and because kids don't understand that level of you know layered emotion so i have to be really specific and succinct in explaining why i love this watch and then compare and contrast it with other watches because that's his frame of reference. He doesn't know about any other watches except the ones I show him. And so when I started doing that and we'd sit, so I read to him every evening. And then after that, I'd be wearing a watch. So I'd just take it off and, you know, talk about it. And what's really interesting is the questions he asks, like things which I didn't know the art, like what does this piece do? Like one of the bits, it, it turns out it, like not the column wheel, but other bits which connected. So then we like operating a chronograph while pressing the start and stop and seeing how it impacts the movement. And it turns out this interests him. But if it didn't, he'd be like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Let's just talk about something else. And, and, and so when I explain different dials or like how, you know, Gioche is done or something like that, it, it, it forces me to, to, to reflect on what things I have and what I like better than others. And it also helps me think through decisions when it's time to either move things on or buy something new, which is similar to something I have. I'm like, I, ref I refer back to these very same discussions I had with my kid, who is about six. Mm. And those are the most enlightening uh, pieces of data in my mind to make decisions, it turns out, which, which I found quite interesting. Mm. Well, your kid's coming from a point of like not being influenced by anybody. Like when you talk about that vacuum, yeah, that vacuum's got one person, which is you. Right. And if you it's true. And if you if you can formulate the questions in a way which do not have bias in them, 
I know that's difficult by even just bringing a topic up. Mm. Yeah, you're getting a very pure response. In, in, oh, so, in so that, I do that exactly. Like with, so, yeah. I do exactly. So, so I completely agree, by the way. So this this is something that I had to, I was actually did a course on, which was like, don't don't steer the, the answer by framing the question in a specific way. Mm. Like, like, don't say things like, why do you like this? That That presupposes that he likes it at all, right? So I'm like, I just ask things like, what do you think about this watch? And he'll be like, when he's not interested, he'll say stuff like, oh, yeah, it's nice. Because he's very much a politically correct kid, it seems. He doesn't <laughs> like to hurt anyone's feelings. So if I ask him, like, do you like... It's England. You, like, you know, well, no, no, no. no. <laughs> I, I don't cast my kid as a British kid, but, you know, sadly, he, he, he officially is. Um, but, yeah, I, I kind of ask him why he likes it. And, and, and for instance, an uh, easy example, on the, on the mad one, he goes... Oh, it spins. And like, that was the most, this is so obvious. Yeah. Like saying it out loud, it sounds obvious, but that's, that, that was whimsical enough that it, 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 it excited him the most. Uh, he didn't care about the fact that the case is made out of plastic or sapphire, whatever it is. He didn't care about how the, 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 the hard part of the case is like, you know, holding the glass bit. None of that mattered to him. Like just for him, he saw the spinning and that is good enough to excite him. Now, Compare that with, uh, I'd say, like a VC, okay, like the blue dial. Like he didn't care at all about the blueness or how it changes color, but he was most interested in uh, how the date wheel works. Like, what is that number? Like, is that the time? No, it's the date. So we're kind of going down the quick set and trying to like explain how that thing moves inside. So what? what catches his attention in a watch is completely random. Like as far as I'm concerned, it could even depend on the day, but it doesn't matter because when I explain it, after I sort of ask him questions, I, I've posted some of these videos on, on my Instagram as well, where I just chat him about stuff. And uh, I think what, what I was talking about more was when I have to explain to him or when I start speaking about it after asking him, then what I end up saying is stuff that I have to really think carefully about, which I was, I was saying is helpful. But in, t in terms of getting him into the hobby, arguably, you know, if he's not into it by the time he's older, he probably, he, even if I really want to force him into it, I don't think he'll, it'll matter. Like people will naturally gravitate towards things that, that interest them. And as they get older, they have the actual decision-making ability to actually yeah. choose to do stuff. That, and yeah. it'll, it'll work out. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. A lot of the details in watches are appreciated, you know, through time. We go back to that concept of time, right? And uh, even the romantic aspects of watches, yeah, how when we look at how many people spend their time doing that finishing, it's because it takes so much time to do that finishing. And our appreciation of somebody doing that for basically their whole life because of the difficulties we've had with our own life through time, and we value that, actually romance romances ourselves to, to go and buy a watch right well, that's a really good point so 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 you know like if we, if we use that in an example just to help me think through it I, I guess if somebody wasted their time all the time so if somebody was just like a lazy bum that didn't do anything useful and then you explain to them how some other person spent I don't know, one whole year making a specific watch from scratch. The fact that that person took one year to make the watch, do you think it would be 
it would make this person appreciate the watch less or more, given that they, as a person, don't really value their time. Well, then, yeah, sorry. And then hold that thought and then compare that to somebody who, like maybe, you know, in your dentist life where time is literally money and how you translate somebody spending a year of their time making a watch into, you could do a calculation into how many pounds that's worth. So how do you think those two people see the value of handcrafted uh, art effectively differently? Well, I think like somebody that's sitting on the couch, right? They might find that, I know it sounds silly, but they might find that value, you know? Like we, 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 we actually, no, we, we look at that and we say, no, it's true. Know, more productive people will say, oh, you know, how can you do that? But then like the guy sitting on the couch might say to you, and I'm doing this so ad lib, but he might say, do you know what? I don't know what I want to do yet. So I'm sitting here going to think about what I want to do. And you guys out there running around like a headless chicken, like you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. But you know, aren't you, you aren't you wasting your time? Right. <laughs> so it, it would be a matter of perception. And I guess, uh, however, but however, somebody wants to spend their time is obviously totally up to them. I think the main thing is, are they happy spending that time like that? You know, does that actually give them fulfillment? Cause I think, you know, that's what I try and look for in life. Right. That, Dan, that's such a politically correct answer. I mean, I was trying <laughs> to be, I, I was trying to be controversial on purpose. So of course, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I completely agree that, that what, what one person, of course, this is inherently true because if somebody like aside from medical conditions that cause people not yeah. to be able to do anything, yeah, whatever people choose to do is arguably what, you know, outside of duress, and I'm not trying to generalize, but whatever people choose to do is what they want to do. You, you don't have to. Yeah, I agree. Like, you don't have to do this podcast. Uh, mm. and, and, and we don't have to buy the watches if we don't like the price mm. or, the, or the way the ADs treat us. But mm. all of these are choices, right? And mm -hmm. and so, I mean, I was just... What about this then? To... Well, actually then, what about this? Yeah, Is the fact that somebody lies on the couch, is that indicative of somebody that doesn't value time does the value of time does the value does the appreciation of time and therefore the appreciation of a watchmaker spending time on a on making a watch right does that appreciation come from your own experiences to yourself so for like for example you know and this is going such a tangent but let's say yeah, <laughs> i am that guy sitting on the couch right but in my mind yeah somebody in my family passed away and i regret that i didn't get to spend as much time with that person right i didn't i didn't actually like you know go out and do stuff but i have that really deep regret that i didn't spend the time like surely you you know and that might be give them the appreciation of time and the value of it right or spending it with a loved one so is it the fact that i personally don't use that time effectively to do something does that necessarily give me like uh I don't get a value of time. I don't think it does. Yeah. So, so this is something, I guess the point we're making here is correlation does not necessarily mean causation, right? So fundamentally, maybe, maybe our view of time impacts how we see other people's use of time. 
but maybe not doesn't have to be the case. I think I agree. Sorry, Jack. I think you're on mute, Jack. Jack, can't hear you. Uh, no, it's okay. I, I just said I saw your message. Um, my answer to the question, and then we'll round this interview up, is I actually didn't think that so politically correct when you when you said that I knew you were trying to be a little bit controversial and it was you know just from my initial reaction hearing that question right like if I were a lazy bum and again not judging people who are lying on their couches and thinking yeah which is a high potential uh, of people listening to this podcast (laughs) (laughs) great I love it um but say if you know you were someone that you wouldn't self-categorize as someone who's very productive and and all of a sudden you heard a friend of yours or you met a random person at a bar that he's a watchmaker and he spends a year making one watch i think positive or negative like i don't know the person could go either war right but he would probably find that extremely fascinating and be like, wow, one wa- like, I think it would be difficult for him to fathom, right? I mean, I'm again, I'm trying to put myself in his shoes. I think it would be difficult for me to wrap my head, wrap myself, uh, my head around it. And again, be it negative or positive. But then, if I were someone who's extremely productive, I could be like, um almost maybe a little bit judgmental and be like dude like why aren't you doing more with your life like uh... yeah (laughs) i'd like to come in here and yeah like we talk about okay you're productive at that moment and we talk about time and we've talked about you know very philosophical about time but actually i think it's about consistency you know consistency over a period of time you know if you're productive now and you're not you cannot keep it up right yeah Yeah, it is useless and then also when we look at ourselves, how we hold ourselves, you know, what we're trying to achieve in life, whether it's personal or career wise, professionally, a lot of it's about consistency, like going to the gym, making it, we know we don't enjoy a lot of the things, but that consistency, you know, is a success in itself. So just picking one moment and saying, yeah, I'm productive now. It, it doesn't really, so what, you know, it's not that anybody could be right. It's whether you can sustain it over a period of time. And I think that's why we hold these people that can do it consistently day in, day out in high regard, such Mm -hmm. as athletes, Mm -hmm. athletes or another, you know, dedicate their whole life to one aim, right? That is extremely admirable when the majority of us have trouble with consistency full stop, let alone with one aim, right? We get pulled left, right, center everywhere. We can't focus as much as them. Because with that, we all know comes sacrifice, right? And it's that sacrifice that also touches us. So, so yeah, I agree. But, but then the flip side, let's just, let's just cover the flip side real quick, which is that, you know, that like an athlete is very one-dimensional in that they are really good at that one thing. So they played that sport or whatever from a young age. They, they mastered it. They honed their skills and then they became the best in that field. Great. But on the other hand, if you look at Steve Jobs' story, like he just wandered around, he like dropped out. In, in his time, he went to study random stuff like calligraphy and you know things which maybe at the time weren't necessarily useful or relevant, but 
he later discovered that they became relevant. So, so at at, the, at that moment in his life, was he consistent? Maybe, maybe not. He may have been consistently attentive in the classes he, he attended, but he wasn't consistent as a student. Uh, and so I think the problem with any of us in this sort of mode of being, you know, outwardly judgmental is that we will never have all the data we need to make a complete decision. So I guess my one concluding point would be, it's okay to explore these thought processes to the end, like what if this, what if that? Do you think this person is one way or another? But it's, it's important to then, you know, draw a line and realize that you will never have enough data about that person to be able to speak about them or judge them in any way. And that's kind of why we mm-hmm. just shouldn't judge, right? We just sort of take, take the decision for face value, whether or not you wish to give them a benefit of the doubt or whatever, it doesn't matter. Just know that you don't have all the data. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, okay, so we're running out of time here. Uh, should we do quickly the reverse around? So basically, yeah. if we can ask us each one question, like whatever you want to ask, it could be anything. It could be follow up to what you were just talking about or something completely random. Um, okay. This, <laughs> if, if you were able to meet Jack, this one's for you. Okay. If you were able to meet the late Nelson Mandela, what would you say to him or ask him? that is very (laughs) random um man can i come back to that i need to think about it i get only one question oh should i should i ask you another one no no it's only one question i i do want to answer it i just need some time to think about it okay ask my my question okay 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 ask me my question um flum Uh, hmm. so if you were able to be on a mic to Neil Armstrong while he was on the moon what would you say meaning his first time on the moon okay Uh... like you can ask him a question you can say something bear in mind the whole world is listening to you as well right can I take the photo with you But you're not there. Oh, I'm not there. You you on the mic to him, like you. Oh, the, I'm on the mic to him. Yeah, so he's he's there. He's saying his thing. You know, one small step for man, and 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 you're on the other end. So I think it was the president or somebody that was there, like like on the radio with him. So now, if you had a chance to be on the radio, I would with him, say, then... I would say, hold it there, Neil. This is one small step for man, and one large step for mankind. That's what I would have said. Uh, wait, but he would have said his thing first. You can't say that. <laughs> <laughs> you just sound like a chump copying what he says. No, I, I was just, I was trying to say it before he said it. Um, oh man, that's a tough one. I would. You yeah, it's it's you ask tough questions. I probably would have naturally. I think I would have said. There's no right answer. Like, yeah, no naturally, right answer, I think though. I would say. Like in the moment, I say, "What does it feel like?" Mm. Yeah. I think that's what I would say. Like, what does it feel like? And you go, "What do you mean?" And I'm like, "Well, everything. Like, going to be the first man to the moon. Plus, actually, how does the moon feel? You know, when you step on it. Mm. You know, that's probably what I would ask." Cool. 
Mm. I don't think I'd have the capacity. Don't have the capacity to think any more complicated because such a momentous occasion, right? Mm. Is that footprint really his on the moon? I I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) I think I probably would ask that. Did you actually really leave that footprint? Right, Um, answer your Nelson Mandela question. Oh, it's so difficult. Can I say two? Okay. Okay, the first thing that popped into my head actually was I wanted to ask him what was his favorite meal in prison? Um, Just because of the like duration of time he spent in prison i think this this is available out there i think is i it? might have read this i just i just forget i i i'm pretty sure i think it, it might have been uh, covered in the long okay. walk to freedom i i just don't i remember, did i, I did I read it. his book though i don't remember it mm-hmm. maybe it might have i read that book like in high school um my second question would be um i mean it was covered kind of in in this book but but just to dive more into detail which was you know if, if he had to categorize uh, if he had to sum it up into one sentence what would he describe himself as um be it like his living mission like mm, yeah rephrase. i know what you mean let me, let, let me rephrase how does yeah. he see himself yeah, yeah yeah how does he see himself mm. after doing so much for you know the country and, and everyone what is like the one thing that is he is most proud of to have accomplished or not accomplished in his life or it might not be a thing it might be his children or something else um we I'm, yeah i'm always curious to you know people who, who we idolize and how they actually see themselves mm yeah so cool but i'll probably ask the first question first yeah okay so so that was the reverso round um and then quick fire um dan do you want to ask your questions oh i haven't brought them up i opened them up uh now you chose for these to be kind of difficult i don't think they're that difficult they're not terribly difficult but we've had easier ones on the show let's just say that so okay one thing that you would get rid of in your life your life okay so don't say something like poverty if you could just wave a wand (laughs) right now Uh, back pain (laughs) okay Right. Very realistic. One person in your life that you know that you dislike, but they don't know it. And you see Whoa. them quite regularly. <laughs> but now I have to say it and then they'll know it through this. No, podcast. you could say know. you could say something like your mother in law. That's the point. Nobody would know. <laughs> <laughs> I think honestly, people who know me know enough about me to realize that if I don't like them, they'll probably no. Oh, yeah. So, yeah so I was gonna say I don't I don't think there's anyone out there who I don't like and they just completely oblivious. I don't think so. Okay. I I, I my belief anyway. Mm. Right. Next one. 
Would you rather live out the rest of your days without internet or no heating? In which country? In, in, in England. Jeez. Is that a difficult... No, do you, mean, do you mean no heating at home or no heating on, like, on Earth, like anywhere? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, wherever you like, go, so heating. No heating. Does... Yeah, because you can't oh, just like yeah. the internet. You can't just go out and get internet on your phone, right? No, 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 mate. I, I'm happy to cut internet for heating in general. Like it's feeling cold is no joke. Mm. Okay. Right. Um, if you could go back and arrange one thing you said or did, what would it be? Ooh, that is rough. But just to clarify, when you erased said thing or, or whatever, does all the subsequent yeah. repercussions yes. also... Yeah. Yes, it's like yeah. time travel. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. In that case, nothing. No, I would not do that. Because, because, that, that, because the, the number of future scenarios that would... As you know, one thing in yeah. 10 Lots years ago effect. changes... Yeah, but it changes a billion things. And so the, the riskiness of doing that is... And, and the unknown, rather okay. than what I know today, yeah. is too much for me. So I'd rather not. For a moment there, you started sounding like Doctor Strange. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what is, when was the last time you embarrassed yourself? I do it every day on Instagram, don't I? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Wait, I, like I want to ask the next one. Okay. Um, when was the last time you pretended to like a gift when you actually didn't? Oh, like on my birthday this year. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> what was uh, it? Ah, uh, no, let's not go there. It doesn't let's matter. Let's not go there. <laughs> 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 right. Um, okay. uh, when was the last time, or and when and what was the last time you got caught doing something that you shouldn't have been doing? <laughs> I mean, I just don't really get caught. To be honest. I, I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking. So. <laughs> That's the alternative answer. <laughs> Can I just tell you, these answers, right? Although you're not answering, they're not painting you in the best light. <laughs> oh, man. It doesn't make I, you I, any less honestly, guilty. It just makes you that, it makes it obvious that you're not disclosing it. Well, I'm just trying to think of when I last got caught doing something uh, I shouldn't be doing. Uh, <laughs> can't remember. <laughs> yeah, can't, can't, can't remember, honestly. Okay. Okay. Um, oh, this is interesting. You have been in war zones in your career. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Basra, Iraq. Uh, yeah, yeah and Baghdad, yeah. Yeah. What's the worst... Actually, is there any beauty to be found in war? No. Even if there is, I think that the suffering is immeasurably worse. So, I mean, for instance, I I mean, you see pictures of little kids that are just having a good time in a site of rubble. Sure, that's beautiful to see, but it's almost like, pity that comes through rather than it's a sweet just yeah exactly and and so i i think 
it, the, the sour mood that surrounds it, I feel, is not worth it. Like it would be better. So just that, yes, there is potentially beauty to be found, but I, I don't think that's that's what maybe us on the outside try to focus on mm. to distract from the real issue, which I think shouldn't be the case. Mm. Okay. Right, last one. Um, one thing that you're seeing that you wish you could unsee. Uh, hublots in general. Sorry, no, I'm just joking. Uh, uh, <laughs> not joking. You see, that's the most honest thing you've said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we'll keep that. We'll keep that. <laughs> Did you see that Murakami hublot? That, I, I don't. I, it hurts my. I'm, I don't. I just sound like an annoying idiot when I say this stuff. It's, it's a joke. I like people talk about why all the hate for hublot. I don't know. They're a successful brand. They've done really well. You know, good for them. Shareholders are enjoying it. Um, what I wish I could unsee, I guess, um, I saw one guy's broken leg bone pop out of the flesh. Um, that wasn't cool. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I still remember, like, every time I see any bleeding, I, I, that thing comes back into my mind. So maybe it's just an example of something I would like to unsee. Mm. Okay. So when I was in junior high and I was uh, playing basketball, my my teammate's finger got broken and the ligaments was just sticking out. And oh, yeah. I can't imagine if that was a leg because it was only a finger and there was just so much there. So I can't imagine the leg and yeah. So, okay. Uh, thank you for answering those questions. Um, that is, uh, I guess, the end of the episode with you, Tom. Thank you so much for coming on. And uh, if you've enjoyed this episode, make sure you go follow uh, King Flum or uh, you can find his written content at screwdowncrown.com. And uh, we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Bye. As always, thank you for listening to The Waiting List Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to reach out to us at The Waiting List Podcast on Instagram or via our private accounts. We'll see you on the next one. Bye. Bye. Bye.